Today, we two foolish men are joined by world-renowned professional elephant rider and experienced sand dune sledder, Kyle Mills. Welcome back to No Limits. Welcome, welcome. Ah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> I know. What is this? Is this the fourth or fifth time we've had you on the pod? It's a, I'm no. not sure. Is it that many? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it, it's at least four, maybe five. But yeah, you... you um. I don't know. You, you like to waste your time with us, and we greatly appreciate it. <laughs> That's fun to do a deep dive every now and then. Well, before we get going, we must warn the audience, just like last year for Enemy at the Gates, today we are spoiling Oath of Loyalty. We are going to ask you, Kyle, to take us through the thought process behind this book. So if you haven't read it, what the heck are you doing? Get out there. Buy your copy of Oath of Loyalty. Get the audiobook while you're at it, because George Goodell is off the charts amazing with this one. And spoiler warning, big spoiler warning, we're going to be right off the bat talking about this book and maybe even starting with the ending. So let me just ask, the Cooks, where are we headed? I know you can't tell us too much, but in a post-Anthony Cook, post-resignation world, do they fade into the background? Is there a rift in their marriage? I'm, I'm really hoping we still get to see Catherine. She's just so damn smart and savvy politically. Oh, can you give us any hints of where we're headed? Because this book ended with a bombshell. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of want to close out that arc. You know, I think we talked about it with uh, Enemy at the Gates that this was originally supposed to be a three-book arc kind of about the fall of uh, American uh, democracy and then, you know, all the talk of... Uh, stolen elections in, in January 6th that felt like uh, it was just a little too current. So um, I was, you know, I had to rewrite Enemy at the Gates to some extent and then figure out a, a way to back myself out of what I had kind of very much set up as, you know, this arc. So my goal is to kind of have them fade into the background and start a new chapter uh, no pun intended with, with Mitch. <laughs> okay. I'm glad to hear there's still some wrap up to be had. I mean, we, as you're going to hear in our second half review, because so far we've only recorded and published our review of the first half of the book. We did some irresponsible speculation. And so we I went down the that. rabbit hole yeah, of what could be done with the cooks after this resignation. And, uh, sure. We might have gotten a little far-fetched, so we're glad you're here tonight to maybe ground us and, and keep us on track. Well, I mean, it would be fun. They're great characters, but again, you know, anything you did with them kind of led down that path, and I don't know, you know, I think I just start to think it, it becomes a little, maybe a little depressing to read about. It's also, maybe, I mean, I don't... I, I always want to be a little controversial because I, you know, I want to be interesting and I want to show people what's maybe right around the corner. Um, and I've been pretty successful, strangely, at that lately, but uh, too successful in this case. And it's very polarizing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to add to that. There's enough of that in the United States. Yeah. And we've we've applauded you for confronting that polarization and, you know, your line about is it Trump? Is it Hillary? It's neither. It's both. You know, you should be vague. It's an entertainment. And we're re really proud and, and, and blown away by how how you've handled that. And you continue to do that, I think, 
with the cooks they're they're so extreme yet they very clearly represent veins or strains in american society that we could be headed towards and you've predicted the future in the past i i really hope you're not predicting the future with them some would say we've already had the cooks are they still to come how do you feel are you feeling any better about the fractured american society and the fabric of america is it, are you starting to see some progress or are you still feeling the the tears are there uh no i i i wouldn't say i'm seeing a lot of progress uh i think we're headed in the wrong direction but um i i think if history shows anything and if you listen to our founding fathers actually they wrote on this that democracy is a temporary is temporary and our democracy is temporary it's not the way humans are wired i'm convinced of this and it explodes and it's great for a while and then people get tired of it and it goes away and it's funny because it works amazingly well you know i mean i don't understand it but um i think it's pretty clear that's where we're headed and and uh that's really depressing so i don't want to write about it (laughs) (laughs) well let's go from that depression to to something really hopeful and we lost Chris here, by the way. He's he's trying to get back in, so I'll carry us forward with some things on my mind. And Chris, I don't think was willing to take this plunge with me, but I'm going to do it and while he's while he's off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. I, I think he might come around to this. He's just not there yet. But Kyle, this is your best book yet. This is ah, the here. best Kyle Mills book in the Mitrap series so far. And, and I'm not a prisoner of the moment. I have not said that really about many books, that it's the, my favorite in the series just because it's new. But this time, I really mean it from the heart. I can say your best dialogue writing, the best character development, the best story arcs of moving characters forward, which I wasn't sure if they could move forward anymore, such as Irene. You bring them to another level in this book, and you do that without a lot of action writing. Can you tell us about your approach to this book of how you wanted to balance what I see as limited action, but really heavy on character development and motivations and decisions? Yeah, you know, it's a, in a way, this book, I mean, it has a fair amount of action in it. I mean, you know, it starts with it. You have the the house attack, which is, I, I mean, if you look at it chapter by chapter, maybe not, but that that thing's like a tenth of the book, just that one action sequence. Um, True. So it's, um, but then it becomes kind of a cat and mouse, which is not something historically you've seen a lot in the Mitrap thrillers. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting to do. And I, I, do, I like to, as I've said before, uh, you know, stretch a little bit with the series to to give Mitch different challenges that he hasn't seen before, see how he'll react to them, but also use, you know, a little bit different structures and show the reader something new. So I don't know that that's always something that, to be honest with you, that readers want necessarily. Um, you know, I think they love Vince's books. They love the series. They love the structure of it. And you know, I understand that. I was a fan of the series too, but um, after 22, or now I'm writing 22, this would be t- after 21, I think it's necessary to, um, you know, vary it a little bit. 
uh, and that's what I tried to do here. I wanted to ask you about the first, like, sort of, I guess, third of this book in terms of really trying to deal with the consequences of your last book, Enemy at the Gates. And I, I think, you know, even we've even seen within this series, we're left with a cliffhanger, and that's very quickly dealt with within, like, let's say the first, the prologue or the first couple chapters. But I, I feel like you did try to do something different here where you really wanted to drive home, you know, follow up what you did in Enemy and, and address it. And because and, and, obviously that's going to be such an impactful event in Mitch's life. I don't know. Can you just talk me through your thought process of, you know, why we got, what led you down the road of wanting to deal with Mike Nash's death for so, such a long period of time? Yeah, well, you know, it's such, this book is pretty heavily art from the last book. I mean, much more so than any book I've ever done and at least as much as Vince ever did. So Vince definitely arced the books over, or stories over too. Um, I never did when I wrote under my own name. And then I've kind of, I might have one up to Vince a little bit and that this is definitely a one story kind of split in two at a convenient you know, spot. So I really felt like you needed to understand exactly where he was coming from and the level of impact that something like what happened to Mike uh, had and, and how the readers would interpret that. And it's because it's a complicated situation. <clears throat> I felt like repeating it would be better than trying to color it. You know, to tell it from Irene's point of view or Mitch's point of view, which really would color it if it was just backstory. Right. Um, because what I've definitely found and what benefited me maybe from writing at the beginning of this is that people really all saw Mike differently. And which is great because, you know, people see real people differently. So if you've read, if you've written kind of a rich character, you know, nobody's going to be able to agree on them. And I honestly, by, by and large, people uh, did not see Mike as sympathetically as I thought I wrote him. Um, I felt like he was a guy who had really gotten backed into a corner. You know, it's a little like what Irene talks about working with the CIA as opposed to working with a, like somebody like the FBI. You know, your choices when they get to her level are bad and worse. They're never good. You know, oh, I'll fix it. That never happens. So, um, you know, uh, I wanted to drive that home. Um and to show where kind of the United States is right now in, in the rappers, which obviously parallels what's going on uh, in the real world. Yeah. Mike, I'll, I'll just to touch on what some Mike said, you mentioned that I also agree. I think this is one of your, if not the, the best written one, uh, one of your best written uh, stories. And I liked all the callbacks. Was, was that conscious to you that those were popping up more? I, I know like you guys, most in this genre do it, but this book just felt like there was a lot more callback. You know, we, we got Grisha, we got the introduction of, you know, your misfit characters in BB and, and Sadie. And, you know, we even got a transfer of power callback when Mitch goes to the white house, right. Where he says, you know, something like he saved someone, saved the president in a bunker, not too far from the one that he was, he was being placed into it. it was that conscious in right. your mind? 
Yeah, I think so, because it's such an incredible series, you know, that Vince started and, and wrote so many books that, I mean, there's a lot of complexity to this universe that you wouldn't want to get, you know, and do too deep a dive. But I think, I mean, these are the things that made Mitch what he is and he would think about. Like, naturally, this isn't really something I do consciously. It's just, you know... I mean, it seems obvious to me as Mitch walks into the White House, you get this really new situation with a uh, with a president that he would think back to his first, you know, interaction with a president and what, you know, kind of informed his career, which was presidents liked him and trusted him. So or even in that case, owed him. So uh, and the contrast of that. So, yeah, I mean, it, and as far as like BB and Sadie, that just seemed like a really interesting, uh, like an interesting to play thing to play him against. But also, you know, I'm in a little bit, I'm in Mitch's situation, right? I mean, I have created Legion and I created them without knowing how Mitch was going to, you know, get out of it. But I created this killer that's really, really good. And is sort of, I mean, he's, he's a little bit Mitch Rapp kryptonite, right? Not a person that's going to face you with a gun. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to see them coming. So, you know, I created them and said, these are their capabilities. And then I had to sit there and figure out how's Mitch going to win. And it's, it, it was hard. You know, I mean, how, what would I do in this situation? How am I going to defeat, you know, somebody that's just completely going to sneak up behind you and, you know, do some really underhanded thing that you're never going to know. I'm really glad you spoke to that because the Kyleisms here are so strong. I don't know if you recall, but we had Flinian uh, moves, Flinianisms, and we've also had Kyleisms. And we know you like to write the quirk, the quirky characters, the little idiosyncrasies. And who sure. better for that than Sadie and Bibi? And, and it just comes on so strong and thick. But the thing is, it's Rap and Irene doing that and setting that stage on purpose for the operational theater they're in. Legion is going to work outside the bounds. You can't just have Maslick, Bruno, uh, Scott, you know, hold up in a house ready to shoot him out. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're never going to present a target. Right. To shoot. At. Yeah. So you'd rather have someone crazy. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest with you, the whole thing, it's funny. I just figured out just yes, like day before yesterday where I came up with that, uh, with that idea with Sadie sort of descending into madness and kind of becoming Claudia. Cause I was, I was out working in my garage and I saw it written across the outfeed table on my table saw and I had written it in pencil across the table. So clearly that's when it came to me, but that was not planned. Like I knew Sadie was nuts, you know, I mean, she's kind of a psycho. She's a bit of a psych, not a bit of a psychopath. She is a psychopath. Um, so working with her was always going to be hard, but I've known people who have done really big undercover jobs before who have struggled to after, I mean, we're talking about years potentially have struggled to come out of that character. And so somebody like her, you could see her descending into that really, really quickly. And it was a, a an interesting challenge. <clears throat> I love a good character challenge to make that descent 
kind of realistic. And, you know, so every time you saw her, she, which wasn't that often, you know, she descended just a little bit more into that pit, you know, and, and of course everybody's thinking, can we just get this done before it really hits the fan? And And BB says, I told you so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, because (laughs) it's kind of like you've got multiple ticking clocks now. You're like, when's Sadie just going (laughs) to blow up? And then the whole op is just screwed. You didn't write it, but another one of those ticking clocks was, Claudia's got to be thinking, did you sleep with her? And and that tension there was, so you're bringing in these characters. They're informing the operational theater that Mitch has to adjust to. They're also informing the relationships between the, the family and the characters we love and the family dynamic is a huge portion of this book and it just works so seamlessly and it blends together and you, you get yourself out of that jam, you know, and that's what we need authors to do for us. Cause we don't have the imagination for it. Thank God you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you have to think about, uh, yeah, all these things that came together and, you know, Mitch under Vince's, uh, you know, tutelage, uh, he, he was a lucky, you know, he always worked with really good operators. It was normally Scott and his guys, and he rarely had to deal with anybody he didn't want to deal with. And I've had a couple of books where he's just gotten thrown together with people he just really doesn't want to deal with because he just wants to work with Scott and the guys, right? And, but that that doesn't always work. You know, you, you don't, you, what is it the, the, I can't remember who said it. it was in the Bush under administration. You know, you go to war with the army you've got and not the Rumsfeld and not the yep, army yep. you wish you had. And that's the, yep. the, you know, Sadie and Bibi are the army he's got. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's a little more grounded in reality in terms of like, I just feel like how an operative, an, an operative like Mitch would have to work, you know, obviously in best case scenario, he would want to use the best of the best, uh, whether that's Scott or whoever, but you know, you can't often do that. I, I like that. You know, we met Sadie very quickly, right, in Total Power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had, you know, quick introduction was used lightly. But I thought that, like, meeting her here and getting her a little bit more fleshed out sort of made her appearance in Total... Like, I, I thought back to her appearance in Total Power and it made... That appearance made more sense. And it, like, yep. it actually filled that out a little bit better. I, I liked it. You, you could argue the same thing with, with BB, uh, you know in the same way. I, I liked how you fleshed out those characters a little bit more. And you know, it's the world's worst character development, right? I'm going to develop this character two books from now. Don't worry. Stay with me. You hey, it. hey it's, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking, and, and I think I mentioned this, Chris, when we recorded about the book, BB might've been your first character that you wrote yourself in the series, right? That opening chapter of the survivor. Yeah, I think so. BB's the early days. And really an unusual character. I, you know, I sort of purposely introduced a character that was very unusual for the series. Yeah. So, um, you know, just to throw in something a little bit different. Uh, so I thought, um, yeah, and she, you know, she's super useful. I mean, she's come back a few times, saved Mitch's life once. I mean, she's, she's actually a great operative. So like really reliable and extremely good at what, like unique in her abilities. Unfortunately, her abilities are driving her slowly insane, but I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's genius is genius, right? You know, it, it happens to geniuses. So um, I like, you know, I like her and I like that she now works for Scott. 
So uh, I, I think um, I think Mitch, you know, you can see his arc now. Um, he's becoming more mature, and it's funny. A lot of people on tour have said, you know, we feel like he's got getting older now again. But I'm not really ad- aging him physically, but you know, it's a whole different world. That's the world's changed so much since Vince wrote these books. And, you know, you have the character that he created, which is a very realistic character for the time, but it's also very realistic that a guy like, you know, a, a guy who spent his life in Afghanistan and, and the Middle East fighting terrorists, you know, would now be having to start thinking about what's my role in the world. I mean, we all do, right? I'm at older, I'm older than you guys quite a bit, but you know, even I think at my age, you know, what's my role in the world? Do I really understand what's going on? Do I really understand where America's going? Really? Is it any of my business anymore? You know, or is it maybe the younger people? So um, I think it's natural that he's thinking about those things. And I think it deepens his character and, and creates that character evolution that's super important in series, but also extremely hard when you're on book 21, you know? Right, right. Now, there's one move you make that I don't know if you intended it to have this impact, but it hit me really hard emotionally. And actually, I don't know if I've felt this way since the Consent to Kill epilogue, which, just to preface, is my favorite of Vince's writing. Uh, where Rap confronts yeah. the Goulds, confronts Louis and Claudia. It's like this earth-shattering moment of revelation about who he is and what he was about to do. And that happened here. I, I felt that way when Claudia is talking to Mitch and one of those just shut up moments, you know, you know, like don't mansplain anything to me, just listen. And she, she gets through to him and she literally says, you've become such a good father. I, I, it hit me so hard. And she and there's a whole soliloquy, a page or two. I actually in our part two episode of the book, I read the whole page. It was so meaningful to me. I had to read out the whole page. Rap is a good father and Claudia validates it. And he, I think he needs to hear that. Is that part of the aging process that? Yeah. Into this role. Well, yeah. I mean, you can see how I mean, still, he's not the perfect father for sure. Um, but, you know, if you look at his relationship early with Anna, I mean, he was just terrified of her. He just couldn't pass her off fast enough, right? And now they've got a relationship. Like, he can talk to her. I mean, it's hard to, for somebody like him, I've known so many people like him over the years, uh, to relate to a kid like that. Um, Particularly, he's gone a lot. And it also goes two ways. And somebody brought this up recently that it's really interesting when you take a person like Mitch, who's everybody has a strong opinion about, and give him somebody who doesn't give a shit who he is, right? I mean, Anna doesn't know any of this stuff. She, he's, she's just, you know, he's Mitch to her, right? Yep. The guy that, you know, hasn't fixed her, you know, gotten her the bike. You know, he said he would and is always busting on her animals, you know, trying to eat them. <laughs> and and so I like that view of him that, the you know, you strip away all the things he's done, good and bad, and 
see him as um, like a normal dude. I, you know, I was using the example of somebody, if you've ever met anybody who's super famous and seen the people or super powerful potentially and seen the people around them and how they behave and then meet their husband or wife and kids and see that to them, yeah, that, it's just like whatever dad, right? right. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a, a relationship that that also kind of shows where he's headed or where he's trying to head um, in his life. I also sense some jealousy towards Scott with how easy their relationship, Anna and Scott's relationship seems to be, yes. you know, like Scott just comes in as this uncle, yeah. this, you know, happy go lucky uncle who could just do whatever and wraps over here. Like, I can't even like, I don't even know what to say at times. Yeah. I like well, Scott's it. just such a cool guy. Yes. He's like so much cooler than rap. Right. I mean, he's the, the blonde, like everybody likes him. He's really funny. And, and, um, and, you know, he and Anna are always like driving the tractor around and stuff. He's just a natural at that kind of stuff. But, you know, the other fundamentally, though, like you, what you said is exactly right. The uncle figure, right? The uncle figure doesn't have any responsibility. Right. Here, but Mitch feels starting to feel the weight of fatherhood. You know, like this is his fault. If she's screwed up, she gets hurt. You know, all this stuff she, you know, and you, they talk about that. That's talked about a lot in, at the end of, of enemy at the gates where, you know, can you just take her and hide out for her entire childhood? No, she deserves better than that. You have to figure out how to fix that. Scott doesn't have to fix it. True. There's also an important, I guess you'd say balancing of power in, in the, in the relationship with Mitch and Claudia, I believe it's earlier on. Oh, actually it's when they when she identifies the tattoo of the people who hit the house in South Africa. And I feel like that moment hit Mitch pretty hard because she's been trying to tell him, you're not the one putting the family in danger. You don't have to bear that burden solely on your shoulders. I have skeletons in my closet, too. And that was the moment where they almost were put on equal footing for being responsible for the family because Claudia could say they're after me, Mitch, like this time it wasn't caused by you. And he actually right. chuckles at that or like he feels the burden lifted. So I just really like yeah. how these dynamics in the family are shaping up. Yeah. And I see them that way. Yeah. As super, as, as equals in right. many ways, you know, right. they, uh, where his wife, Anna was so different yes. than him and their relationship was so, I don't know, a little uneven in a way. Um, like she rode him a lot, but it was a little ineffective, you know, it's like, you know, so whereas, you know, Claudia and he, I think now he sees this in my mind, this was kind of an epiphany moment for him that, and I think I'd said specifically in the book, we're no matter what happens, we're better off together than we are apart, you know, because you know, in this case, it's her, but the next time it'll be him. And, you know, and, but they have these threats and together they're, they're better than the sum of their parts. So, you know, that I think is something they've gotten through because they've had this conversation many times before, right. yes. I mean, which he alludes to. And, you know, this is the last time they're just gonna, you know, this is, this is just who they are. This is the messy 
relationship. <laughs> Everybody brings their messy past to their relationships. It's just theirs are much messier than ours are. The sum Hopefully. of the parts being greater is then not just told to the reader, but demonstrated in, in the hit at the house. Yeah. The way she's on the comms is she's protecting Anna. She's like the super mom. She's protecting Anna. She's on the comms. She's doing what we knew she did best from the old Louis Gould days, but she's doing it to protect and defend the family. Mitch is the shooter for sure, but he would have gotten nowhere without the dogs and without Claudia. And so the way you pull the family together is just incredible here. Yeah, it would be unrealistic that Mitch would have survived that. Maybe he could have escaped it, but like that he could have done what he did without her calling out all those moves. So they were, to me, that was very, well, it wasn't 50-50. Like you said, it was more like, uh, you know, 40-40-20, got to give 20 to the dogs. Um, <laughs> the, and, uh, but, you know, that was a, that was a, two-person operation uh, and the people were equally important. So that it very much, yeah, exactly what you're saying, a demonstration of, uh, you know, they can't do this on their own, you know, individual. I'm curious, one more thing here. Sorry, Chris, but um, at least to me, and I'm, I'm curious if you were cognizant of this, that hit at the house was very reminiscent of Consent to Kill and the hit on the house where I think Rep takes out 13 guys on his own. Now it's 10, two for the dogs. Without Claudia, he wouldn't have been able to do that. So he's aging. It's not the onslaught that 13 guys with RPGs had back in the consent to kill days. Right. But it was, it, it, I just sensed these callbacks. <laughs> I, that one, I have to admit, as much as I'd like to say that was intentional, it really wasn't. Um, it's just how I saw the story logically unfolding. Right. Well, speaking of getting older and I want to sort of talk about Legion a little bit more in the sense that they're this young up and coming, uh, you know, new threat, you know, there's a little bit of a running dialogue that, that me and Mike have about the events of separation of power when Mitch was outed and, and his face was on the, you know, put out there, how have you chosen to, to one deal with that? And two, do you, I just, I struggle to think that like the Legion would really have no idea who he was or Mitch is just that well at disguising himself or I don't know if you could just speak a little bit on that. Um, yeah. So that was a tough one. There are a number of things that Vince left that were not super consistent right. in no, we the know. universe. Yeah. yeah. And that was probably the worst of them because he then went back to Mitch being pretty anonymous. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what I did was I decided to take the middle road, which is what I normally did in this, in the series. And that was to say, okay, I'm going to have Mitch unknown to the public, but pretty well known to his kind of operate the people that were be operators. Um, and I saw Legion is not, I mean, she did in the end suspect who he was. Right. Right. When she saw what he, what he did, but, um, you know, I, that was a tough one. I'm not, I honestly am not sure why Vince did that. You know, Vince was a bit of a pantser and I think he did that and maybe didn't fully think through 
the ramifications of having him outed like that, or yeah. and maybe even more likely, he did not see Mitch Rapp as the icon that he'd created. I mean, we saw that throughout the series a little bit with Mike Nash. That maybe Vince never initially planned to write this epic saga about one guy, and that he was going to write a few books about. Him. You know, the first book didn't have Mitch Rapp in it. Right, right. right. He's going to write a few books. Right. He's going to move on to Mike Nash or Coleman or whatever. And Mitch was going to get shot or or fade into the background. And right, you know. So it's easy to look back now and say oh, it was obvious that this whole thing was going to turn into this 21 now book uh, saga. Uh, and But I don't necessarily know that that's what Vince had in mind. And it may not have happened in the end. It almost became part of the lore. You know, like this is a series that definitely has its own lore. And I can't say that about many thriller genres or thriller books. They're just kind of beach reads. But this one has its own lore. And to us the separation of power problem is just an integral part of what makes the rap series, the rap series. Like we had to write that one off ages ago, you know, with Vince and just expect it. Sure. Some people will know who rap is. Some won't is what it is. And I kind of like that. Yeah. Flair. It's a bit of a convenience. Yeah. It's a, it becomes a bit of a convenience to be honest with you that you're like, well, if it's, if it works that they know who he is or if it works that they don't. Um, Although that kind there was of connects nowhere to, go to yeah, sorry. This kind of connects to a pretty small scene that you left dangling. And I, I was curious about it because I really enjoyed it. It's when that cop shows up in Franchuk and the cop has this really weird suspicion that this Burhan character isn't who he says he is. And there was foul play involved. He thinks it's drugs. But it, it kind of reinforces this idea that rap has this aura no one quite knows what it is that he carries about him and this air, but everyone who meets him who's in the field in some way has a sense. And I thought that character kind of resonated with me because that's how a lot of us are. If we were to encounter someone who actually does these operations, just kind of give them like a side eye, have no idea, probably not even recognize them. Oh, you're a retired Marine living, you know, in McLean, Virginia, right. not too far from Langley, who's 70 years old and, you know, it's like, hmm, was there something to your career in the past? What 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 do you think about that cop scene? What were you going for there? Because he just kind of fades away, even though he very clearly had suspicions. I didn't want to turn that into kind of a subplot. However, one of my I have many pet peeves in uh thriller novels and movies. And one of them is that everybody gets to do this uh and no, there are never any repercussions. So that is kind of where I was going with it. Um, you know, it's like you see this all the time in movies where somebody will, um, you know, they'll have a giant shootout and car chase that cover, goes through all of San Francisco, but the police never, you know, intervene right. and there's never an investigation. It's never on the news. It just sort of happens and then it's gone. Similarly, like Scott Coleman, when he took his beating from Grisha, he sat out a book because, you know, that's another one of my pet peeves is when, you know, people are shot six times and thrown off a building and set on fire. And then the next scene, you know, not only are they fine, their hair is perfect. Oh, the gray man. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, with the movies. Yeah. For, you know, the movies love that. Right. And, yeah. and everybody's got to be super good looking 
you know, all the time. And for instance, I got into a kind of an argument with my editor, Vince's editor, about, you know, damage to Mitch's face. It really bothered her. Remember when he got the crap beat out of him by Maslick? Yeah. And I'm like, well, that much damage, you know, I mean, he's having all this dental work done. I mean, it's it's going to show. And she was really against me kind of changing the way he looked a little bit. So I didn't, in the end, I didn't do it. But Only um, the scar. Nothing but the scar. Yeah, just like a scar. And uh, so I, but that's another, you know, one of those things that with the universe, and particularly for me, it can't have hiccups in it. Like for me to to continue it forward, it has to, I have to understand it. So it has to feel really real to me. And those are the things that I thought there's no way I can just let this go as, Oh, he killed 10 guys at his house and he's just going to go back and paint, and, you know, <laughs> up, turn the furniture back over and nobody's ever going to talk to him about it. Yeah. Just, yeah. It makes sense that like, you know, one, the cops would show up and two, they would be suspicious, you know, that he's, is not who he says he is. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Exactly. So I, I have to ask the elephant in the room, you know, we, we saw a couple characters come back. We saw Grisha come back for a hot second. Sadie and BB, we already talked about where's our man, Marcus. <laughs> well, he was not in this book where he's one, one of the no limits favorites. Um, what's he doing at this he time? He could have been purged. Yeah. Was he purged by the cooks? No, 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 no. I still see him there. It just wasn't that kind of an operation. Okay. All right. So, All right. Good, good to know. Uh, no, no, I still see him definitely as part of the universe. But, you know, Marcus pops up, you know, I mean, real as as be realistic, you know, that when he's needed, you know, but not an operations guy, not a logistics guy, just a tech guy. In my mind, he's already working for Nicholas Ward for, for some reason. That's our irresponsible speculation, right? Yeah, there, he was offered the job. Ward's getting a right? network going going on, but yeah, 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 for sure. And Irene's got some decisions to make, doesn't she? Yeah, you know, I mean, Irene's she's in a bit of a quandary right now because, um, and I think she mentions this that <clears throat> she was so focused on external threats that she did not see, uh the divisions in America becoming the main threat to the country. And I think it's realistic for her to a person like Irene Kennedy to be really concerned about that. I mean, she's paid not to have blind spots. Right. Right. And this one came and, it, and it's really manifested in, in the rap verse, which is parallel to ours. And, uh, she's got to figure out what to do about it. And that's a much harder question than what do you do about, you know, a, a, a terrorist coming, you know, trying to smuggle a weapon in and, and, and kill, you know, a few thousand of us compared to, you know, the pension potential downfall of the United States and what's driving it and how she can stop it or at least slow it down and why she didn't see it 20 years ago when it was, and stop it, you know, try to nip it in the bud. But, um, you know, these, these are the unsatisfying questions that have become our reality. And uh, they're hard to deal with in thriller fiction. And I think you see a lot of people not wanting to, you know, you see a lot of people 
pulling back into, you know, like pulling their focus in on their character and the battles that that character has personally or with personal enemies and stuff, as opposed to the grander scale of, you know, what's happening in America and what are we going to do about it? But because of Irene Kennedy being who she is, um, that's obviously something she's, she's going to start thinking about. And there's almost a clash of titans as Irene is dealing with this. And yet she knows the path forward is to meet with Catherine Cook. And that limo scene was, and the, the dialogue again, I've, I've commended you for your writing. How did it feel writing someone who I want to say could be equal to Irene, but someone who can throw her weight around just as well as Irene can. What was it yeah. like putting them together in that limo and talking about democracy? It was super interesting because, <clears throat> yeah, she, I mean, you know, Catherine Cook isn't really, you can't even describe her as, as a first lady. She's a co-president. So her power is, I mean, so far beyond what Irene Kennedy has. Um, I mean, and that's just realistic. Uh, so it, uh, I mean, I know, uh, people don't necessarily want to see it that way. I think fans maybe don't see it, want to see it that way. I, I, I remember once somebody who was very, very Republican was talking to my father who had been the legal, uh, legal attache of the United Kingdom, the head of Interpol. And it was when, uh, Barack Obama had, had, uh, ordered the, the, um, Osama bin Laden be killed. And, you know, he didn't want to give Obama credit. So he said, oh, no, he was overridden by the head of the CIA. Obama didn't want to do it. And my father, who had worked for Bush, the first, laughed. And was like, I don't think you understand how the government works. <laughs> the CIA director does not override the president of the United States. And that's what we're seeing here is, you know, Irene is just not even in this anywhere near the same level as the president of the United States. And that's just the way America works. So she has to navigate this situation uh, extremely carefully uh, because she has met her equal. I mean, potentially close to her intellectual equal, but you add that, you add to Catherine Cook, the power of the White House. And, um, you know, that's a pretty formidable opponent. <laughs> so um, the whole half thing has to be negotiated and uh, dealt with in a very calm and methodical manner. So I like that about this book because you don't get to see Irene behind the eight ball very often, and, and particularly when she knows it. So uh, I think it's interesting to see how she handles that because she's always the smartest, smartest woman in the room. And, and uh, that's not necessarily the case here. You know, we, we got a little bit more of Irene, I felt, in, in this book than in the past. And obviously, we don't help and see her, like you said, behind the eight ball. And, you know, Mitch had to just trust that she was able to, you know, going to be able to solve this, this mystery and the, uh, you know, or problem in the end. And, you know, she, she obviously yeah. does. Yeah. And, you know, I like seeing this because, you know, everybody's a hero when they have the upper hand, right? 
Right. But when, you know, when, when the gun's to your head, then how do you perform? And, right. you know, we got to see how Irene, you know, performed. You know, you like putting Mitch in unfamiliar situations. It was really cool to watch Irene have to be in that situation, both professionally, as we're saying, but also personally. We got a little peek behind the curtain for Irene, which is somebody we typically don't. Tommy's in college. She's reading, you know, books for leisure, not books for work. Uh, she's considering a relationship. I, I feel like Irene might have had the most character development in this one kind of subtly more than anyone else. Do you feel like you set out to to maybe develop her a bit more and push her to the next stage of her life and career? Yeah, I don't know if I set out to do it because of her circumstances. I mean, we're doing spoilers here, right? So she lost her job. And I mean, that that was her life. Her entire life, I mean, was was wrapped up in running the, the or working for the agency initially, but then running the agency. And all of a sudden that's taken away from her. And that's pretty startling. You know, I mean, like for anybody, right? I, you know, now you've got, all of a sudden you got, she's worked probably what, 16 hours a day. All of a sudden you got 16 hours a day free. So um, she knew that relationships didn't work because, you know, of her job and all that stuff. And now, you know, as much as one of her lives has been closed down, you know, other avenues are opening. So, uh, yeah, I did want to see like how she would react to that and, um, see if she could, I mean, she always seems to land on her feet. You know, I think she's a very introspective person and, and understands what's going on with her and with the world around her. So, um, yeah, I, I, and I, and that's something, I don't know that I'm going to develop too much in the next book, but you know, in later books, it would be interesting to see her have a bit of a life, you know, cause you know, Mitch has gotten one. Should we talk about the odds, Chris? Our little the, gambling bet that we have going on. Yeah, I, I, I think so. <laughs> uh, we've given our odds and another guest we had on gave his odds on the possibly controversial question. We won't ask you to speak to it. Will Irene ever become president? <laughs> we'll leave it at that. The questions on the table in in the community, but we're not gonna we're not gonna press you on that. All right, I don't plan <laughs> that far ahead. <laughs> so far, I think we're all below a fifty fifty chance. So you know, it's, it's not like there's pressure or anything. Politics are an interesting thing, and I don't know how many people in their right mind would get involved in American politics right now. Right. So. I once knew a guy who shall remain nameless, who was offered a very, he's a corporate guy and he uh, uh, was offered a very high level job in the government uh, cabinet position. And he said, what? And give up all my power. And <laughs> I feel like that's even worse now than it was when this happened. Uh, <laughs> every time I watch West Wing, I just, it gets worse and worse and more depressed because it presents this ideal of what the American government yeah. can and should be and the prestige and the honor behind it. And just watching it, you know, when it came out early two thousands, like, Whoa. And then watching it mid two thousands. Hmm. Watching it now is just straight up depressing. 
and then you do yeah and you realize it's not west wing it's a veep yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly uh, that's funny now you must have had fun taking us while we're on the west wing taking us into the white house those security protocols in that final uh, scene where Mitch is, is going through the Secret Service protocols, who all have foreign accents. Very interesting. There might be something there. But, oh, my God. You must – I was thinking of you the whole time that every little detail that you put in there, you must have just been enjoying. Was that one, Was that a fun yeah. scene to write? Yeah, because, you know, you do you, – you, know, you have to put yourself in every character's shoes when you're writing from their point of view. So, you know, when I was writing Cook, I felt his fear, you know, and I thought, man, if I was, if Mitch Rapp was after me, what would I do? And so, you know, all those security protocols were pretty organic the way, you know, the way I created them, because right. it's, it's what would have really happened if I were Cook and I was put in that position. Well, I don't know if you wanted to ask Chris, but you mentioned Joe Maslick before. And yes, I, I wanted little, to get to that. It, that is so badass what you do with him. <laughs> I don't know why I, I, me and Mike were talking last night. I, I love that scene of, we especially like at the at the end of it when he's you know trying to shove this like almost <laughs> barely cooked cheeseburger in his mouth. I, don't, I I like how again we we get a call back to him and and how he, he's come a long way from when Rap shoved a, a bag full of money, you know, it, it, or a briefcase full of money and told him to, to run this brothel, whatever. Yeah. Just this, this idea of, all right, Rap calls him, grab a sniper and just drive and go, get your tail and, and, and go into the woods. And I, I don't care where you go about an hour. Like, I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll, just take take me through like just coming up with, with that idea, I guess. You had fun with that one too. I, yeah. I did. I thought it was super fun because but it, it's fundamentally super stupid. Like yeah. as Irene <laughs> points out, right? And he was just pissed. You know, what I mean basically that's just Mitch Rapp pissed. And he's just, I'm just gonna flick this guy's ear. And Irene's saying, you know, you don't flick the president of the United States ear. It's really stupid. And he's basically like, I want this guy to feel. And, you know, I mean, I think this is really, I mean, looking a little deeper into rap, who's always shown as this guy with no fear. <clears throat> and he doesn't fear for himself. But now he's got a weakness. You know, he's got a family. Yeah. And he's basically said, I want this guy to feel like I feel every day, thinking that Claudia could get taken out that, you know, Anna could be standing next to her at the time. And I want this guy to sweat. And, uh, you know, of course, Irene being Irene is like, you know, that was probably not the best way yeah. to, to handle the situation. <laughs> but you can feel it from Mitch's standpoint where you're just like, screw that guy. Like, yep. I just want to make that guy burn. And I can't kill him right now, but... I but can make him worry. He then double he then doubles downs on that, right? When he flips Legion, you know, like Yeah. And that makes Irene even more pissed. But in that in that sense though, the way I see it was very much like that he felt like that was a done deal. He wanted him dead at that point. Yeah. That wasn't that wasn't flicking his ear. He thought, well, if I can disappear for a little while, this, you know, Legion can get this done. And then my problems are solved. I didn't do it, you know? So 
I thought uh, it made complete sense that 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 would be the natural progression. If you're not going to kill Legion, then use them. You know, yeah. Like, so turn them. And the the perfect person, you know, she gets rid of of uh, Cook, but nobody's really sure. Did he die of right. natural causes? Did he, you know, did any rap have anything to do with it? Did Legion even exist? Like it, it's a perfect because rap just wants him gone, right? And he doesn't like. There's no, you know, he doesn't. He's not the kind of guy that's looking for, I don't know, to spike the ball or anything. He just wants him gone. I, I want to read the novella about their mission to get the the one guy killed using their his own cow in, in a stampede. <laughs> <The> stampede. <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, a, a couple series novella on, on Legion in terms of all, all the kills that, they, you know, I'm sure there's plenty more, but the ones that they describe, uh, you know, sitting there waiting Oh, well, I guess that would be a little bit boring, but waiting for someone to die for not having their stroke medicine or diabetes medicine, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the the little nuances there with Legion were were pretty cool, and I, I think it fleshed out that that character really nicely. Yeah, I like the uh, her. I I, I had like uh, she's a really I think was a character that was really interesting to develop because you had to really put yourself in her position. Like, what would it be like growing up? a very capable woman in Iran, you know, with a really conservative father and like that, what would that do to you? Right. And, you know, like my favorite thought by her part, I think of that book with her in it is where she's hacking those guys up with an ax and is thinking about Lizzie Borden and thinking, you know, a woman ahead of her time, like she really admires the imagination and and like sand that Lizzie Borden had to do something like that when women just didn't do those kinds of things. I was like a woman ahead of her time. Right. Do I guess do, do we see more of Legion, or is this the only time uh, we're going to see them? Uh, you know, at some point in the series, I don't, I'm not going to do it in the next series. I don't think, but she's interesting. I mean, but it's kind of got a very Mission Impossible feel to it. Yeah, at the, at the very end of when the end of the ambulance scene, it, and and they're back at the back at the house, it almost had this like very Sherlock Holmesy in s to it, or you know, like a I always say the name wrong, but Agatha Christie type, you know, we're, mm-hmm. a who we we who done it? We think we, yeah. yes, there, there you go yeah. with the lettuce too. That was a who done it moment. Yeah, and you know, I wouldn't say though that. The hallmark of a Mitch Rapp thriller is super complicated operations. No. Or no, dragged it's, it's out. Mission Impossible, yeah. Yeah, and you think about her and like her plan for the president's death. You're talking, you're not working in weeks, you're working in years. So um, I don't know if that would be, you know, you have to consider the Mitch Rapp structure and uh, stay somewhat true to that. And I've, I've played with it a little bit because the world has changed, but. Um, yeah, I like moving into more of a mission impossible kind of thing. I, I, I think it would change the series too much. You're saying we're not going to see Mitch Rapp pull off, uh, you know, a perfect skin mask, like five times to reveal five different characters. Like, Ethan no, Hunt. <laughs> you know, and I do, and I'll be honest with you. I really love the mission impossible movies and I loved the series when I was a kid, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a different, like it's if different. I was writing stuff on my own under my own. I mean, I have a book I wrote about, you know, stealing all the money out of, uh, out of Vegas. 
that is this extremely complex heist that takes up like half the book. But it wouldn't it wouldn't be right for you know a Mitch Mapp thriller. That's why the Legion flip makes so much sense because that's Mitch and Irene's wheelhouse is, is turning people is really creating agents out of your enemy and he turned yeah. Legion and it was super cool. It was so much. Yeah, and, they, and it's you know that's how you turn people. I mean, there, there's this myth, you know kind of myth in in the media and in even in these books that you know you turn people with fear or shooting them in the knee or whatever, but you turn them by making it feel like this is in your best interest. Like everybody wins here. And, you know, she sees this on and, and understanding what their weaknesses is and hers is that drive that she can't to be the best, to be the best, like to go from being this girl who was abused in, in Iran and put down and, told she was never going to be able to be anything and become the best hitter in the world. And that's a weakness though. That's a weakness that somebody would exploit because you know what she wants. And the minute you know what somebody wants, you can give it to them and, you know, and get what you want. And that's a hallmark of the universe going back to Louis Gould, you know, right. I was just about to say that Mike was Hubert's. And then Enzo Ruiz, he wanted to be killed by rap. There was glory in dabbling with the pinnacle and the Z. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and rap Absolutely. said, you could be the best well-known killer in the world. And that's coming from me. I'm almost bequeathing to you. If you make this hit, yeah, I can appoint yeah. you as the next wave of the top of the top. And you'll do anything for that. And you can think if you were Sarah, that's a pretty, that's pretty attractive offer. Not yeah. to mention all the money. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was kind of a win-win for her and her, and obviously her, uh, you know, her, her other option was getting buried beneath the azaleas. So it was a pretty clear, <laughs> a pretty clear decision. When, I think you could also see her like wanting, she's taking on more and more missions that she's getting pushback from her partners from. And it's like right. this, this itch to like all right we're, we're gonna one up and then we'll get out or we'll get out or, or we'll go back to whatever and and then it all culminates with this you know the final mission that gets her caught yeah and i see her kind of as you know in a she's a little bit of a like a little bit of a serial killer vibe here because you know serial killers i'm not an expert but i always talked to a guy who worked at the fbi that worked with them and you know they they say they they're in a frenzy and so they're not going to stop. You know, I mean, I was, in fact, I was talking to a guy at MI, I guess we had MI5, about Jack the Ripper. And, they, and I said, well, maybe he just stopped. And they're like, no, no, yeah, did die. he died or something happened because they, at that point, they don't stop. They never stop. And she's a little that way that, that she, she's going for more and more and more risk and bigger and bigger hits. And eventually she's going to die. Um, but that's her end, not, I'm going to retire and, you know, take up knitting or something like that. Whereas the people, yeah. And the people who work with her though, would kind of like to retire and take up knitting. So there's that, you know, there's that tension between them. That's because they're logistics people, the operations people, they're a different breed, like rap on the other side is struggling with getting out and what that looks like. So it, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. The rush, right. The, the rush, the power, all that stuff. And then to, to, 
chuck it. You know, I mean, and it's funny, I've known people who have done that, but the vast majority of them uh, don't handle it that well. You know, I mean, it's just a very difficult thing to go, particularly if you retire from the government, very high level government job. You know, do you, um, I mean, it just stops. It's like the spigot turns off, right? One day you're the most powerful guy in the country and the next day you're just, I don't know, driving around your golf cart. And I've met people that were really psyched for that to happen. And, and you know, I knew one guy who started a fruit stand on his, like literally <laughs> super powerful guy. And he's like, I just want to go work in my orchard and have a fruit stand. Wow. Yeah. Go rock climbing, ride bikes, yeah. and do woodworking, right? Yeah, but I'm, but I'm just, I do that during. It'd be weird to turn off the spigot. I knew another guy who carved, well, really wanted to carve ducks. And then I, like, really? You want to carve deep coin? Going to go from like all this power and glory to, you know, doing that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, really. I've just been dreaming for years of, of you know, carving decoy ducks. Do you think it's like similar to the fact that could you ever see yourself just not wanting to write anymore? Yeah, I think about it more now that I'm older, you know, what, what would I do? I mean, you know, in a way you, you feel the clock ticking and you think there are a lot of other things I want to accomplish in life, you know, that I want to, I'd like to be a good guitar player. You know, I'd, Mm -hmm. I'd like to be fluent in Spanish and you know, I'd actually like to be able to a good woodworker, not a guy who just like sort of clamps everything together and, you know, hopes the glue holds. And so it, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, I'd, I'd like to have more time to read, frankly, you know, all these books stacked up everywhere and I don't really have time to, to read them. So, yeah, I mean, you know, on the other hand, you know, that's a lot of, it's a little like, I think I was sympathetic to Irene when I was writing that and to Mitch that you're just like, okay, yeah, but boy, that's a lot of time on your hands. You know I mean? Yeah. It's a little bit scary, you know, staring into that abyss. So uh, the answer is I'm not sure. It's, it's a topic of com- regular conversation at my house. though. <laughs> well, speaking of all the glory, you're up to eight rap books that's incredible i think vince wrote what 13 8 13 13 of them i think it's 13 yeah Yeah. so what do you have planned for 2027 it's going to be a heck of a year for you know (laughs) i yeah i don't know i don't know i mean it's 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 hard to say because i mean people really like this book um i just got I just got a copy of the times list and it's number two. Nice. Um, it debuted at number two and, uh, um, you know, took Stephen King down. So uh, that's awesome. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it's really hard to say. Like, I just can't, I don't plan ahead that far to be honest with you. Cause it's hard. Cause the world changes too fast. Yeah. Uh, we, we were going to bring it up, the fact that, you know, it, it's it's got really good reviews on Amazon right now. It's trending at, at 4.7 and 4.66. Take those numbers on Goodreads. Take those numbers for whatever you take them. And then obviously New York Times, that's that's actually something that matters, you know. Um, not only. But I mean, what they go hand in hand, though, you know. Yes. I mean, it's, 
to me, it's very gratifying. I think more than the sales, really. I mean, obviously, it's important that they sell a lot, uh, but you know, it's really gratifying that that uh, people still like the books. I mean, you know, 22, 22 books. I mean, that's what I'm writing now. It's the twenty second book that people have stuck with this series for that long, and even through the transition to me. And are still super excited. You know, I go out, you know, I was just out at Poison Pen. And people are still excited about the story and the evolution of Mitch Rapp and where things are going. So, um, you know, that's, I wouldn't say that, I mean, it's great to be high on the New York Times list, but I wouldn't say that's something I think about when I'm writing the books. I think about, you know, are fans going to think this is really cool? Yeah, crafting a good book. Yeah, I'll I'll just, just to say, give you a little anecdote, I, I, one of my neighbors just got the book and, and started reading it. And then he, he knew that I do this podcast and that I'd already read it. And then he, he saw me up walking down the street and he had gotten to the scene where Mitch kill and, and Claudia kill all, all the people in, in the house. And the, that scene, and he was like, oh, I was reading it. And it was, it was just like a warm blanket. Like Mitch Rapp is back in my <laughs> life right now. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a cool community to be a part of. Um, and it's 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 great to see that you know people are really really vibing with this one. Yeah, and you know it's I mean I've always felt this way. I think all we all do about these series characters. It's like a like a friend of yours that you see once a year. You yeah. know, like you're really your coolest friend. Clearly, but but they become really real to you. Mitch did to me as a fan, and um, you really want to see what they're up to and have this real personal connection to them. So everybody who reads Mitch has owner has their own ownership of that relationship uh, between them and the characters. And I think that's just super cool that they feel that real to people, that they really care about where the books are going and, you know, sometimes get mad about where the books went. But I feel like that sig- signals that they have a very real connection to what's happening, real investment in it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I wasn't sure I told this to Chris before we recorded. I wasn't sure I was going to, I was going to get here, but I'm ready to say it. Not only is it my favorite Kyle Mills, Mitch Rapp book, in my opinion, this is your consent to kill. It really is. Ah, Thank you. Thank you. It's different in so many ways, but it is just, really enjoyed this one and the way Vince used consent to kill to bring the universe forward, bring the characters forward, reignite passion and meaning in their lives. Cause things maybe were getting stale to that point with Vince's writing. And it just like sparked this whole new movement in the rap verse. And I feel like this book is hitting so many of those notes for me and the action scenes kind of parallel that book a little bit and well done hats off. And, another point of gratitude for you i have a double limerick we're not going to let you go wow a double a double limerick this time yeah nice oath of loyalty commences with a bang and mitch rap embedded in a latin gang the clashing of titans tony cook he frightens resignation from the white house hot dang geez kyle mills has done it again words just keep flowing from his pen the best he has written with the dialogue. I am smitten. I need the next book. Oh, please. When 
<laughs> nice. That was a good one, Mike. Thank one. you. Thank you. you I should put that. Yeah. I should. I should. That that would be a good blurb. I don't think anybody's <laughs> had a blurb that's a limerick before. <laughs> yeah, just a little peek behind the curtain. Mike normally likes fi- fires off these limericks like as we're finishing the notes in pre-pod, but he, he, he had, he put some time into this one and it, it definitely shows. So, What are you going to break into haiku? I know <laughs> we need to switch it up, Mike. <laughs> I keep telling him that I'm going to go back cause we have all of them saved. Uh, I'm going to go back and like make, make a little mid trap, uh, limerick book and, 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 nice. and give it and get it, get it get a frame for Mike or something. <laughs> but, well, Kyle, thanks so much. This was a blast tonight. I, I would say yeah. my favorite and our best interview we've done together. So thanks for taking the time. Oh, uh, always a pleasure. I'm uh, I'm really glad you guys liked the book. Loved it. I guess well, before you go, how has your, I should ask, I meant to ask you this at the beginning. How is your, um, you know, it was not virtual this year. So how was your time interacting with fans? You actually got to go to both Arizona and Minnesota, right? Yeah, it's been really fun. Um, yeah, it's so nice to be back face to face with people again. Though the virtual thing is still big, you know, so um, it's an interesting, I think it's a changing dynamic now. Uh, we were just talking about that, that um, people really liked the virtual stuff. And it's also made things much more international. Mm. Uh, people tune in from all over the world. People who could never in a million years come and see you, people like China and stuff like that. And um, that's, I think, really an interesting dynamic. So um, a little weirder because, you know, I think a lot of authors are now not getting the physical crowds they used to. And it's, I think it upsets some of them. I wouldn't say it bothers me that much because... To me, a smaller crowd is also a little more, you know, I mean, it's a little different than speaking to 400 people, but if you're speaking to 50, it's a little more right. intimate. People can, you know, a- ask questions. You can have a little bit of dialogue and stuff like that. It's functional. So um, I think, you know, COVID changed a lot in the world and it's going to be interesting to see if it stays that way, if it has staying power, these changes. So, but um, super fun to like, be able to shake hands with people and talk to people face to face. If you're ever on the East coast, we'll make an effort to uh, get where you are and maybe do one of these live one day. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be really fun. I mean, I'm sure I will. This tour is a little bit abbreviated because I spent six days at BoucherCon. Right, and I right, think right. Uh, the, the publisher is a little bit protective of me because I, uh, you know, after a while on the road, Okay, it's really it's hard for me. Um, yeah, you know I'm not used to it, and it's one of those things where it literally is one of those you know a different place every night. You're getting up at four in the morning every morning to fly and then do a speech, and then like you know the next morning you're out. And so uh, they said, well, you're going to do six pages, six days at BoucherCon. We're not going to then you know immediately send you out on you know two weeks, you know a different place every day. So um, maybe next year it'll be a little bit wider as, as opposed to as so concentrated, but because BoucherCon was in uh, Vince's hometown, you know, it made sense to do that. Right. Gotcha. So David's getting soft. He's not, you know, running <laughs> you into the ground these days. David's getting soft. I think, 
I think they think I'm crazier than I actually am. Well, I don't want to Sadie Hansen on our hands here. So exactly. (laughs) All right, Kyle. Thank you very much. Yeah. It was fun talking to you guys. See you. Well, on the internet and uh, we'll talk again next year. Right. Next year. good. Yeah. Yeah, Stay in touch. Thanks. All right. We'll do. Thanks. All right, guys, uh, we got to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry App, our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us at thrillerpod.com or on Twitter and Insta at thrillerpodcast. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. <laughs> <laughs>